BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I typically try to balance the positive news with the more troubling news during the situational update, uh, but unfortunately there's not a lot of good news today. More than two dozen states are reporting a surge of coronavirus cases. Wisconsin, Iowa, and the Dakotas are reporting some of the highest increases per capita. Surging COVID-19 cases across Wisconsin. Wisconsin broke another single-day record on Sunday with more than 3,000 new infections. The state continuing to be one of the worst in the country with outbreaks. Tony Evers is urging Wisconsinites to help slow the spread. We are nine months into this pandemic. Right now, it's not slowing down. It's picking up speed. Wisconsin is grappling with one of the nation's worst COVID-19 outbreaks. Hospitals in some parts of the state are near capacity and delaying other surgeries and procedures to free up beds. Today, we're diving into what's going on, where it's happening, and where things go from here. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hi, Amanda. Today is Tuesday, October 6th. And it feels like every other day, Wisconsin is breaking its own record for the number of new coronavirus cases. And we know that the number of cases alone is never just the story, but certainly the trend in Wisconsin has been a pretty dramatic increase in not only the number of cases, but the positive testing rate, which we talked for a long time, is one of the benchmarks for sort of where we are with this. And, and if you compare Wisconsin to other states, you can see that we are hitting a surge at a time when other states have leveled off or are seeing much lower increases. So what's going on here in Wisconsin with this recent surge in coronavirus? Well, and it depends on who you ask, because, of course, the different political groups have kind of seized on this as an opportunity. You have uh, Republicans in the Republican-led state legislature kind of pointing to this and saying, look, we have a mask mandate in effect, and we're still seeing a surge in cases. You have Democrats saying, look, we had our state Supreme Court overturn a lot of the restrictions that were in place that were meant to keep people safe as COVID-19 was really starting to ramp up here in the spring. So you have a lot of people talking about things as though they're the cause when sometimes there's just a correlation. But we do know that a lot of things are happening at the same time, right? So in these spots that are getting hit with COVID-19, especially in what's known as the Fox Valley in Wisconsin, kind of Oshkosh up through Appleton, those have also been campaign hotspots. Wisconsin's a swing state. Wisconsin could decide this presidential election. That's happening at the same time as K through 12 schools opening. It's happening at the same time as colleges and universities coming back for in-person instruction and people being put together in the dorms, which is its own kind of situation. And it's happening as people are experiencing what's known as COVID fatigue, right? We've been in this pandemic for nine months. People are 
quite frankly, tired. We're all susceptible to it where you start to maybe ease up on some of your own self-imposed restrictions because you're just tired of dealing with this. And then the weather is getting colder, so people are kind of being pushed indoors. There were some social opportunities you could have outdoors over the summer. Now those are moving indoors, which we know can ramp up the spread of COVID-19. So we have a lot of things happening at the same exact time. And it's not necessarily, you know, we, we are based in Milwaukee. We talk a lot about southeastern Wisconsin, but this surge in Wisconsin isn't necessarily focused here in southeastern Wisconsin. When you look at things like one of the benchmarks, hospitalizations, which is going to be an indicator of the more severe cases, because that's another factor here. We know that when colleges started back up, there was a big surge in cases among younger people, people in their 20s, uh, their late teens, and and, but there wasn't a big shift in the number of hospital, hospitalizations, in part because there's a lag in that indicator, but also because younger people tend to not get as sick. We're seeing that surge in hospitalizations now, and the question is, is that those young people, and we're seeing the lag finally catch up, or is it is it older people, and where is it happening? In this case, it's not happening, say, where UWM is located or where a concentration, you know, Marquette University and others. It's not necessarily happening on these college campuses. It's spread throughout the state, and if you look at hospitalizations in southeastern Wisconsin. In the past seven days, there have been 18 new COVID-19 patients in this region um, out of, you know, I think what had been 200 and something before that. It's an increase. It's still always a concern where there's an increase, but it doesn't compare to other parts of the state that are much smaller that are seeing some fairly dramatic increases. So what's happening with that and, and really where is the hardest hit region right now in Wisconsin? Yeah, so when we, we talk about the areas that have implemented new uh, public health emergencies, that's really the, the Fox Valley area we were talking about, Oshkosh, up through Appleton. And when you look at their hospitals, and you know, here in Wisconsin, we have our um, Department of Health Services, we also have Wisconsin Hospital Association, they put together different dashboards where at different points you can get a snapshot in time of what hospitalizations look like, how much PPE hospitals have on hand. And again, those are snapshots in time. So, you know, what looks really bad one minute can look less bad maybe five minutes from now. But those snapshots have really been showing that uptick in hospitalizations as we head further north into Wisconsin in those areas that have been kind of the campaign hotbeds. The New York Times actually recently did an analysis because they're tracking um, an ongoing list of the worst current metro areas for COVID-19 cases. So of their top five of the worst current metro areas for COVID-19 cases, three of those are in Wisconsin. So we have Oshkosh, Nina, Green Bay, and Appleton who are in that top five. And then as you get Further down. That's all pretty much the same region as well. I mean, that's we're talking that sort of northeast quadrant of the state. Exactly. And then when you're looking at the 20 worst metro areas, you're going to see seven Wisconsin cities. And again, we're talking Marinette, Manitowoc, Fond du Lac. So we're not talking about cities that are spread all over Wisconsin. We really are seeing that geographic area. But we know from tracking these numbers for the last several months that any of that could change on a dime. So people in other parts of the state, you, you can't really be lulled into a false sense of 
security thinking, oh, it's happening over there and not here. Because remember, people were pointing to Milwaukee not too long ago and saying, oh, the cases are in Milwaukee. They're not going to come here. A lot of these areas that are getting hit hard earlier in the pandemic were saying, hey, we're not seeing a lot of cases. Can you let us maybe do a, a few more things than some of these other more heavily restricted areas? It really seems like if you look at maps, and I know you can't see in a podcast a map, but I'm looking at that Wisconsin Hospital Association website, and, and I, I watch this a lot because I think it's an it's there are trackers, a lot of trackers out there, and some are um, they count numbers really well, but the numbers don't mean a lot. Number of cases doesn't give you a lot of meaning because there's so many other variables. But Wisconsin Hospital Association, we're obviously looking at the more severe cases. And one of the big concerns from the beginning back in March was, what if we run out of supplies for PPE, the personal protective equipment for doctors and nurses? Um, and so this gives us that snapshot. If you look at the map on the WHA website, it's very clear the darker counties, which is the heavier concentration of, of cases per 1,000 people, are right in the, the darkest cluster is right there around Outagamie County. You've got Oshkosh, you've got Winnebago County. Um, um, you've got places that are uh, heavily concentrated with with uh, an in or a surge in cases and an increase in hospitalizations. So far, what appears to be the good news there is the number of hospitals that are short on PPE right now is not increasing. There doesn't seem to be a trend where there's a concern yet. And that's still the question. If at some point we start to see that increase, the number of hospitals that are reporting a shortage, then it becomes obviously a bigger situation. If ICU beds start to run short, then that becomes a bigger situation. And that is something we are starting to see, certainly an uptick in people who are more severely ill, more people who are taking up bed space. And what kind of impact does that have as some of these hospitals in specific areas start to run out of ICU bed space. Well, and that's where we get into the other health impacts of COVID-19, right? So, of course, there is the health impact of if you have it, whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic, what are the long-term effects on your body? What are the short-term effects of whether you need to be hospitalized? But then you have all the other conditions and all the other situations in which treatment gets delayed because hospitals have to free up beds and doctors have to free up spaces. So there was a big concern early on in the pandemic that um, people were putting off cancer screenings. And there were a lot of other medical conditions that just were not being treated. You had hospitals delaying putting off elective surgeries or surgeries that were considered non-essential. And elective doesn't always mean, oh, it doesn't matter if I get this. For some people, there's a big difference in their quality of life. And when you're talking about things like screenings, health screenings, you're talking about something that can save your life. So when those things get put off, as we're seeing some of those hospitals in those clusters start to do, that's when the, the ripple effect of COVID and its health implications, that's when it really starts to spread. And when we have outbreaks, it doesn't just affect people who are, I mean, we've talked a lot about safer at home, which was obviously an, an issue back in the spring. Um, and just the idea that people should limit their public movements as much as practical. We've got to live our lives on the other hand, the less we move, the less the disease spreads. For some people, they can't move at all. They are confined to prisons. And when there's an outbreak, 
COVID-19 finds its way in. We're seeing that that has uh, caused a real problem in certain institutions in particular. And we talk about that same area in the Fox Valley and a little bit south of there where there have been uh, outbreaks. I know we've heard a lot about Kettle Moraine Correctional Institution as an example that's had a pretty substantial outbreak inside from what we hear. Uh, what happens when you have a COVID-19 outbreak in prison uh, and, and, you know, what do you do with people who need to be locked up by order of the courts? Well, and that's an issue that you've covered a lot, Brian. And, and as you, we've pointed out on this podcast, it's not an issue that's just confined to people who are locked up, right? Because I think sometimes that can be the public perception. But when you have um, people who are working there and then going home and then bringing it back into their communities, that's when you really worry about that uncontrolled spread. So there's been a, a push to release um, certain people early from their sentences. There's There's been a push for even a more widespread release of people to keep that spread of COVID-19 under control. And, and certainly those pushes are not without controversy. Well, they're, they're controversial. There's there's not necessarily in some areas a political appetite to do that, but it's also a, the, the mechanism for it is not simple. I remember when this first happened back in, in March when we first started seeing the surges and the concern of what was happening. I, I covered a case in Waukesha County where former Attorney General, now Judge Brad Schimmel, was one of the judges who was still holding court in the courthouse. There were very few courtrooms open and he had an entire day where all he did was hear uh, appeals from inmates who wanted to be released early because of the concern for COVID-19. And there were quite a number of people who were on what's known as Huber release. That is a work release uh, privilege. Um, they were in the, the, the Waukesha Huber facility. Uh, they essentially emptied that facility, but to do so, they had to go case by case by case and have a judge hear both sides, hear the prosecutor, hear from the defense, then make a determination. Now, most of the cases that day, the inmates on Huber release were released. Now, again, these are people who are lower level offenders. If you're on Huber release, there was a privilege given to you already uh, in the first place. Maybe drunk drivers, uh, people who, not, not repeat drunk drivers, maybe just a couple of offenses. There were other issues. They were already granted work release privileges. Now they're being allowed out of that facility entirely. To say you're going to let people out of a state prison, they've obviously committed a much more serious offense. Um, and again, if you have to go back to individual judges, the people in those prisons come from multiple counties. So it's not as easy as saying open the gates and let a bunch of people out. There's a procedure and, and it's not an easy one. But certainly there are groups, there are advocacy groups that are saying we've got to find a way to relieve the crowding in these prisons because it's only exacerbating this problem. And as you pointed out, Amanda, if you have people who work in those facilities who are exposed to it, they go home. It's not, it's easy to say, hey, if you don't want to catch COVID and you don't want to be in that situation, don't get yourself thrown in prison. That's an easy judgment to make. But there are people in these communities who did nothing wrong who are now being exposed to prison workers who go home to their families and could be spreading it at the grocery store or wherever else. Well, and you said something that stuck with me, Brian, because I think it's kind of the theme and that's the, the phrase political appetite, right? Because a lot of the decisions that are made about how to handle COVID-19, 
they're coming from people you elect, right? They're coming from your county supervisor. They're coming from your city council. Um, in some cases, they're coming from state legislators, although we haven't really seen a whole lot from them lately. But we recently had a case in which the public health officer in Sauk County resigned, citing political gamesmanship of county supervisors. And, and basically, you have this group of people who had a really hard time coming to consensus on what to do in in different areas and what kind of restrictions to put in place and how long to put them in place for and and when to lift them. So even though we do have doctors and health experts who can inform some of these decisions, a lot of the people who are actually making the decisions can choose to go in that direction or not go in that direction. And in the case of um, the Sauk County um, public health officer basically saying, look, you're not using evidence-based decision-making and I feel like I need to step down. I, I think there's no question that this pandemic and how to, to best respond to it uh, over the last seven months has been uh, something that has, you know, politics has taken hold of. And I'm just, look, we had, obviously we have a presidential election coming up in, in just a few weeks and the president of the United States, I mean, it would be hard to, ha to talk about this in a podcast without acknowledging the president of the United States was diagnosed with COVID-19 and, uh, and was hospitalized at Walter Reed. And, and now the responses to that are obviously no question, no surprise, heavily politicized. Um, even the very things that the president is tweeting about himself have caused all sorts of controversy. So it's inescapable that there's going to be uh, going to be political views of all of this. But in the end, COVID-19 doesn't know about politics. It's going to spread to anyone and everyone if, uh, it, you know, if, if they're in position to to come in contact with it. So we still are left with what happens now and, and we are looking across the country at places that have seen surges at different times we know new york city was one of the early ones to have the worst of the surges and it's really leveled off there since then and become much less of a problem in new, new the state of new york we saw surges in the south in texas and arizona for a while and in other places florida where those things have subsided now we're seeing it in places like wisconsin uh where we're seeing a, a substantial surge here um for whatever reason the states around wisconsin we're not seeing similar surges, at least not to the degree we are here. Oddly enough, North Dakota under a massive surge right now. So this does seem to hit in various spots, and it's not always clear why it happens. But politics doesn't drive where these surges hit necessarily, unless it's a matter of people simply not following things like mask orders or other things. But I don't think you can necessarily tie this to politics. In the end, the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. Well, and... Don't forget, right now, Wisconsin is in a legal battle over politics, over what the governor is allowed to mandate right now, specifically over the mask mandate. Well, and, you know, it, it's so interesting. I mean, that, that's that's a political fight that's going to go on. And it's not a huge surprise when you think about it. For many, many years, long before the pandemic hit, there's always been a political divide over what should the role of government be in our lives? How far should government be able to go to tell us what to do? That's not new, 
But this is the ultimate test of what government can tell us to do and what good, what should government tell us to do and how, how should we follow it? When should we follow government's advice? And so obviously the, you know, there are political camps that have different views on, on, on what that looks like. Um, so I think it's inescapable that that's going to happen. So you've got that political fight over what to do with the mask mandate. But let's imagine for a moment that Republicans win that fight and, and the mask mandate is struck down. Does that mean people in Wisconsin will stop wearing masks altogether or that they should? The scientists aren't going to change their views on that. They're going to tell us to keep wearing them. Does it mean that the stores that currently require you to wear masks when you go inside, will they change their rules or policies? I suspect not because they've got concerns about, number one, liability, and two, perception of their of their customers. So I, I think that's a trickier question. There's going to be these political fights in the end somehow we've got to get through this thing. Somehow we've got to find our way out of this pandemic. And what does that look like? I think if everyone stopped wearing masks today and we all just started going back to our regular activities, the spike we're seeing in Wisconsin wouldn't be isolated to Wisconsin. So there is a real question about how does this look going forward? I do wonder, and I I, I think everyone's got to wonder, uh, when this election is finally resolved, and it won't be on election night, we already know that, but once it's finally resolved, Will some of this political fighting over COVID-19 subside? I don't know. I mean, there's been so much buildup for so long. It's hard for people to give up their entrenched positions. But in the end, will, will some of that maybe level off a little bit just because we're not leading up to a major election? Yeah, that's, that's one of the... I, I have a hard time seeing the political fighting going away. Uh, like you said, people are just really entrenched in in what they believe and what they believe um, that government should or should not be able to tell them to do. Um, and in some cases, you know, what they believe about how serious the threat of COVID-19 is or whether it even is a threat at all. Unfortunately, that's something um, that's up for debate in, in the public sector today. The best that we can do especially as journalists, is, is listen to the science and let people know the, the major indicators for when things are getting better and when things are getting worse. One thing that particularly worries me right now is the state of contact tracing in Wisconsin. So contact tracing is when they're basically like investigators. The contact tracers are hunting down, um, you know, who you last were with and when you last were in certain places when positive COVID-19 cases come back. And it's so that you can figure out where things happened and people can be alerted if they were in close contact with you. And in Jefferson County, we're in a situation right now where they say their contact tracing is so strained that they are asking people themselves to call people that they've been in contact with because their contact tracing just can't keep up with that. That's something that concerns me because as a journalist, when you're looking at that and you're looking at indicators of how well we can keep up with this, that doesn't look promising. Well, I have a, a, just happen to have a personal acquaintance who is a contact tracer who I see her Facebook rants and I can, I know that she is currently overwhelmed with what's going on right now, working very long hours. And I think uh, I sense in what I've seen her post on Facebook uh, that she is frustrated with the people she calls because so often the people she does reach either are unwilling to talk about uh, their own activities or 
they are admitting to essentially having completely ignored any of the advice or recommendations of those who say, here's how to prevent spread. They talk about having essentially broken all the rules. So she's certainly hit a, a, a frustration level of her own. One thing that if we go back to the beginning of all of this, go back to March, we thought this was going to last a couple of weeks. Isn't that naive? When you look in hindsight, we thought, oh, in a couple of weeks, we'll all be back to normal. This will be great. Just a little bit of pain. Um, but we know that now that that's not the case. But back then, all the talk was, obviously, we've heard the term over and over, flatten the curve. And the idea was to make sure hospitals are not overwhelmed. I think there was probably maybe a naivety and a hope back then that the disease would go away. We know now clearly that's not going to happen and hasn't happened. So the question now really is, especially as we head into the winter, probably the greatest concern is making sure hospitals don't become overwhelmed, making sure PPE isn't in short supply and and trying to minimize the impact of this. And, and there's sort of a clock on this too, because the clock is how soon will a vaccine be ready, mass produced and distributed for people to take? And will people get the vaccine? Will they trust the vaccine? How long before that really is effective? And, and I think so many of the predictions now we're hearing from those who are really looking at this from whether it's from uh, from Dr. Fauci, whether it's from Bill Gates, who's watched this and talked about it and, and other predictions we're hearing. It could be the end of 2021, could be early into 2022 before this thing's really behind us. That's still a lot of pain ahead. But does it get better? The, the key is, I think, in the meantime, doing all we can to make sure that this doesn't reach those massive levels where we overwhelm hospitals, where we see a lot of people dying who otherwise don't need to. Um, and we don't know if we're out of the woods yet on that. Certainly what we're seeing in Wisconsin is concerning because we've seen a, a big spike here recently. It's not happening nationwide. So is there a way for Wisconsin to bring this back under control and kind of ride it out? That's really what we'll have to see. Well, and in the meantime, we're all making those decisions that maybe aren't as obvious that are tougher and put a strain. So, for example, my child's daycare is closed this week because of a suspected COVID case. And my husband and I were, were having a, a long discussion because his mother, who lives in Michigan, had offered to come in and help watch our daughter. She is very firmly in the at-risk category for COVID. We didn't feel good about having her come in from another state into a state that is currently experiencing a surge in COVID-19 cases, even though that surge isn't necessarily in the area in which we live. So it's like on one hand, we really need child care. On the other hand, this is a family member's life that we're talking about. And so how do we make these decisions? How do we respect people's own ability to make decisions? You know, in this case, she's she's a grown woman, but we're also really concerned about her health probably and more so than she is sometimes. So I think these are the things that families are grappling with and it's the questions that don't always have obvious answers um, and, and you're trying to work your way through it, but that's where some of the, the COVID fatigue comes in. So I'm hoping that as we grapple with how we handle these situations, that the, the COVID fatigue doesn't set in too much because that is something that can have an impact on the virus's spread. Well, there's another issue to consider here, which is uh, clearly if, if, if we want, the, it might, my son said something, he's 13 years old. He said something really interesting in the car the other day. He said, dad, what if everyone just went nowhere and stayed in their own room for two weeks? If quarantining for two weeks works, wouldn't it be over? And 
he makes a good point. If six, seven billion people could just sit still for two weeks, then maybe the virus would be gone. I don't know if that's, if that's medically correct or epidemiologically true, but the concept makes sense in theory. It's not realistic because we can't just sit still for two weeks. We have an economy. We have a world that, that functions. People have to make things. People have to eat things. People have to do things. So the economy can't just be shut down forever. And we're seeing the impacts of that. There are businesses that will never come back. Small business owners who've lost their, their livelihoods and their investments because this has just killed them. And so there is a balance between how much does society shut down and how much do we try to keep it going to keep the economy moving? It's not an easy balance. And how long can this go on? The thing is, the longer this continues to be a concern, the longer we see surges like we're seeing in Wisconsin, the longer it's going to be before business is business as usual. So how long can it go on this way before more businesses are, are struggling and are in trouble? Um, I, I think those are, those are big picture questions that don't have easy answers. One thing is clear if the trend continues where it is in Wisconsin, we're going to see more trouble than less. And uh, the, the one thing I wonder about, and I want to I get to this point, Amanda, it, it is looking at the percentage of positive tests we've had in Wisconsin, because that's really stood out as, as a massive increase. I think there's so much focus, and I, I say this as a journalist, I think we focus way too much in this industry on the number of cases, because numbers mean nothing unless you know the, you know, the, what they represent. Um, numbers mean, if you tested everyone in the state today, we'd have a massive surge in the number of cases um, because we'd be testing everyone. The question is, how many people are we testing? And what's been surprising and alarming is we've actually been testing fewer more recently, but still seeing that increase in cases. So the percentage has been huge. And I do wonder, is there a change in who's being tested that's played any part in this? Are we only testing people with more severe symptoms who are more likely to have the disease? Or uh, you know, have there been certain testing sites that aren't available anymore? Or is it simply that there's only so many tests available and there's just that much more of the disease? Or is it a combination of all of that? Right, and, and that's a that's a great point, Brian, because at the beginning of this pandemic, you'll remember we did stories about how hard it was for people to get tested. So only people that the sickest of the sick were getting tested. Now, compared to that right now, testing is easier. So my husband and I were actually just talking about um, getting tested. If, if he ends up going somewhere, you know, he'll want to get tested right before. That's an option, even though he's not showing any symptoms and he's not sick and we know where he can go to do that if he needs to. That was simply not an option in the spring. But I do want to point out WHO says ideally your positivity rate is going to be below 5%, right? Below 5% of the tests coming back that are positive. And Wisconsin has been hovering pretty steadily around the 20% mark. So, you know, 5% compared to 20%, just under 20%. And that's what we're talking about when we say that there's a staggering difference. So I know that- Well, it is, it's a dramatic change from what we were seeing even earlier this summer. We weren't anywhere near 10, well, we were maybe near 10% at times, but we were seeing six, seven, 8%. Now we're talking daily 
20 plus percent. Yeah, over the summer when we, if we hit 10 percent, that that was enough to raise some eyebrows. That was considered high. And now I, I think getting back down to 10 percent would be a, a welcome change. So I do, I do know that compared to the beginning of the pandemic, testing is easier. The, the question is, are we seeing things kind of dwindle off since summer in terms of testing availability? That is not something I've heard anecdotally. But it's also really a hard thing to measure because it's not that's not included in the dashboard data. It's not like we have a tracking mechanism for uh, how many testing sites there are and how many tests they're able to do a day, how many people they're turning away a day. Although that, you know, as journalists, we'd love to get our hands on data like that. Well, I know there and there's been criticism there. There are certainly a number of people out there who don't trust the numbers they are hearing. And, and it, what only adds to that is when you hear about things like negative results being thrown out. And the state is trying to do, I know it's best to, to make the data make sense and be meaningful. But when there are some people who are being tested repeatedly because maybe they have the type of job where they need to be tested repeatedly. As an example, obviously, when Big Ten football starts up, they're going to be testing the Wisconsin Badgers every single time they go to practice, every single time they have a game. Will they count every single negative result as a negative or as they're doing now, will they take those repeated tests and throw those results out? And does that skew the numbers in a way that makes it look like the percentage is higher? There's controversy over how to count that. But what I bring it back to, and I still wonder, I don't know that anybody's talking about this, and I think about this regularly, is that question of who's being tested because it, it just as an example, and I know this isn't the case, but if you only tested the people who showed up in the emergency room with symptoms who thought they had COVID-19, your positive testing rate would probably be pretty high. If you only tested people at completely, you went to the grocery store and just tested people at random who otherwise felt well and had no symptoms, the testing rate would probably be pretty low. So even focusing on a testing percentage doesn't tell you the whole story if you don't know who's being tested. And I guess that's the question I still have is, has there been any dramatic change in who's getting tests and how they're being counted from earlier this summer when we were hovering at six or 7% or 8% to now when we're daily hovering at 20%? That's such a dramatic shift that it does raise that question to me anyway, has there been a change in who's being tested? And I don't know if that question's been asked or answered. I haven't seen it. At least I haven't seen a clear answer on that. Well, and that's why as journalists, when, when we talk about having a surge, we never look at just one number, right? So we're not just looking at the positivity rate. We're not just looking at the number of new cases. We're not just looking at the number of hospital hospitalizations or how many hospitals are near capacity. We have to look at all of those numbers as, Absolutely. as a big picture. And in doing that, one thing is clear, and it is that Wisconsin is seeing some kind of uptick in COVID-19 when you look at all those different data points. We still have a lot of questions that we want to answer, uh, but for now, that that portion of the picture is clear, and we're working to find out more, as always. I think that probably one of the most significant factors to me or the data pieces of data to track is is the number of ICU beds. And I say that because when someone is in the ICU with COVID-19, there's no there's no equivocation. That's a serious illness and you can see you can track those numbers over time. We don't have a diff, a differing number of ICU beds in the state over time. There's a fixed number and when we know how many are filled up with patients 
we can see if there's been an increase in the spread and, and in severe cases, and we're seeing that right now. There has been a pretty substantial increase. In fact, the number of ICU beds that are full right now uh, with COVID-19 patients has tripled since July 5th. Um, it, it was, I think, 65 at its low point back on July 5th. It's well over 200 now. So that is a substantial difference. There's no question we are seeing a surge in Wisconsin. It's always a question of just how big is that surge and what will it take to reduce it. And obviously, we're going to be talking about that uh, for some time to come throughout uh, the rest of this election season and beyond. Uh, and we want to have you joining us here on, on the, the podcast to to, as we talk more about it, we also want to hear from you. Uh, of course, we're going to be continuing to bring you these twice-weekly episodes of Open Record, not just over the pandemic. We'll be talking about the presidential election and so much more. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, if you have a question for the Fox 6 investigators and the Open Record team, send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. That is fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will be back on Thursday. Thursday.